Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. His is a voice familiar to New Yorkers. We should have extraordinary respect for people who work in healthcare on the front lines every day. His influence in helping steer the state of New York through the historic pandemic has been enormous. He is... Mike Dowling, I'm the president and the CEO of Northwell Health. If you didn't know, Northwell Health is New York's largest health care system and consequently New York's largest employer. But Dowling is also an author. His own story of how a dirt-poor Irish immigrant came to this country and rose to become one of the most influential health care leaders in America is compelling and inspirational. As I wrote it, I said, you know, maybe this could be you know, somewhat of an inspirational story for others. It's not about me in many ways. I mean, it's an immigrant story that is replicated millions of times over. This week... On 880 In-Depth, our conversation with Michael Dowling about his story and the good, the bad, and the controversial of the pandemic. There is no evidence that the large numbers of deaths in the nursing homes was a result of people going back from the hospitals to the nursing homes. I don't think that stands up at all. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Scheldt. Michael Dowling is smart, friendly, fierce, loyal, optimistic, brutally honest, and unapologetic. In the half hour ahead, you'll hear all of those things in our conversation with him about his recent book titled After the Roof Caved In. That's a reference to the dirt floor home he grew up in near Limerick in southwest Ireland, where he says, yes, eventually... The roof did cave in, but not before he was on his way to America to write an immigrant story worth sharing. In our conversation, we tackle the tough questions about how COVID was handled last year in New York. Dowling calls his employees superheroes. He also credits Andrew Cuomo with steering a steady ship. 
Dowling was right in the thick of it last year as one of Governor Cuomo's closest advisors. More on the pandemic just ahead, but first, our Peter Haskell spoke to Michael Dowling about his upbringing and how it shaped his life and career. You talk about growing up in poverty. Just describe the kind of conditions you grew up with. Well, I grew up in a farming area in Southwest Ireland. Uh, we did not have a farm. Uh, we were a, a family that just had a, like a small little, you know, 50 by 50 plot of land at the back of the house. Uh, the house was um, very old. Uh, it was... Um, I uh, had a thatch roof, I uh, had uh, mud walls, uh, mud floor, uh, we had no electricity, we had no bathrooms, we had no heat, um, uh, obviously no plumbing, uh, and, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, from a material point of view, that wasn't, we didn't have much. I spent my, I spent as a kid growing up, I used milk cows for the local farmers, and help out with, uh, you know, the pigs and the cattle and everything. Um, my father was a laborer uh, who, unfortunately, was a very hard worker, but became uh, crippled with arthritis at a very young age. He could not work again uh, after he was around 40 years of age. Uh, my mother was deaf, um, and I was the oldest of five. Uh, it was a very picturesque area that we lived in, a very rural um, uh, but not too many opportunities. Uh, if you didn't own a farm, there were very few opportunities for any kind of advancement. And uh, I uh, always dreamed of going to college. Uh, we had no money, of course, and uh, so I had to figure out how to get that done. Um, so my family is all still in Ireland. I'm the only one in the United States. I came here by myself. Uh, and um, I left uh, Ireland initially when I was around 16 to go working in England to work in steel factories uh, south of London uh, for the purpose of helping out at home, since I was the oldest, but also trying to figure out how to come up with some money to be able to go to college. You, um, you, well, you described the, the kind of future that was expected of you. What made you think you could go on, get a college education, and do the kinds of things you've done? Well, one and uh, the first part of your question, um, a lot of people, when you were in that kind of a circumstance in that part of the country in Ireland when I grew up, uh, people didn't expect that you were to be ever, ever to be successful. Uh, you were supposed to be confined to that, that, that kind of a status, and, and people expected you to be happy with it. I, I never believed that at all, and part of the reason that I didn't was that my mother was an extraordinary individual. Um, uh, she was very well read. She didn't have much formal education, but she was very well read, and she always made books available. So I read uh, a lot. I still read multiple books a month. I mean, I'm just, uh, I just, you know, try to uh, learn as much as I can all the time. So I read an awful lot, and uh, you know, you read about the United States, you read about what's happening around the world, and and I always knew there was something else outside that had to be better, and that uh, nobody was going to tell me what I shouldn't do. Um, I still have that characteristic. If you tell me today that I can't do something, 
that's probably one of the reasons I absolutely will completely do it then. So I resist people telling me what to do and telling me that uh, I didn't have the potential. And my mother always encouraged was always encouraged us um, and would say in many different in many different ways, but would say to me many times that you never let your current circumstance inhibit your future potential. Just because you are where you are today does not in any way preclude you from being in a much, much better place tomorrow. I believe that. And I knew that uh, there were better things out there, but there was no future for me at home in that location, and I had to leave. And leaving was not easy. I was the oldest, and uh, my mother, you know, didn't want me to leave. I mean, she knew I had to. She didn't like it, but she understood why. But I knew that for me to be able to accomplish anything, I had to get out. And, uh, you know, it was the right decision, obviously. I still like to go back, and I still go home, and I go back to the place that I grew up. The house, of course, that I grew up in fell down on us. That's the reason for the name of the book, After the Roof Caved In, because the house did fall down on us in a storm one night. But I still go back to the same location, and uh, it is completely different today. The, 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 the scenery is the same, but everybody's in a different circumstance. I mean, it has evolved dramatically from the time I grew up. It has really modernized and, Every house now has a BMW on the driveway. Whereas when I grew up, you got around by bicycle, by donkey and cart, or horse and cart. Uh, there were not that many cars in the area back then, and it's not that long ago, you know. Uh, you know, this is the 19, uh, this is the 60s. Um, so, but I've been pretty fortunate. You went to University College, uh, Cork. At, yes. at what point? At what point there did you think to yourself, I can do this, I can make it? Um, well, I, when I, I, got, I was, I, you know, I did well enough in high school in Ireland because uh, I, I always studied very, very hard. And I got lucky enough to go into college. And, um, you know, I, I had been in England, I came home, and then I was had enough money to pay for part of my tuition at the University College Cork. Uh, when I got there, I you know I was very uneducated about college. I I, I knew the, about the concept of college, but I didn't understand what college meant. And so for the first year, I was um, I worked very very hard because I you know didn't everybody everybody else that was there was pretty well off. They had cars, and I always thought, well, maybe they're smarter than I. But then at the end of the year, when the exams were posted, and the results of the exams were posted, and I look on the wall, because they post the results of the exams on the wall publicly for everybody to see, and I realized, oh my God, I passed, and I did very, very well, and I came in high up in my class, and then I realized, oh, I'm just as smart as these other people. I kind of always knew it in a way, in, you know, deep down, but that, that was proof in many ways. And then it builds up your confidence. And the other reason, the other thing that built my confidence in, confidence in college was that I was a very good athlete. I played with college. I played on all the top teams and represented college, represented the college in sports. And that is a, a kind of an equalizer because when you're on the sports field, it doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich. Um, it's a fair game. And um, uh, that was a very good confidence builder. And then I came to the United States. And... Um, Fortunately, um, the United States is a great place that gives opportunity. When I came over here, 
I, you know, there were many jobs available. I, I, I was willing to do anything. I didn't have any preconditions of what I would do or wouldn't do. I would just take the job that allowed me to work and make money. And, um, you know, then one step leads to the next step. And then you never know. You just keep moving forward. Why did you come to the U.S.? Was it about the making money? Was there some kind of plan you had? And what made you stay? I, there was no plan. Um, uh, it was primarily to make money so I could pay for college. Um, that was the initial plan. And then, of course, when you get here and you look around and you get to know Manhattan a little bit and you see the opportunities and you see what's possible and you meet other people and you realize what can be achieved. And, uh, you know, it all it boosts the confidence and gives you the sense that there are many futures ahead of you. And if you're willing to work hard, uh, and if you're willing not to play victim and not complain, but just get moving and, and get to it every day, and then then uh, you can hopefully have something happen. I didn't know that I would end up in uh, teaching in university. I didn't know back then that I would end up in government, and I definitely didn't know that I would end up as a CEO of a big, big health system like today. I had no idea. All I knew this I, I knew was I was going to work hard. I was going to uh, push myself as hard as I could, uh, and uh, I was going to step walk up the ladder. I didn't know what was at the top of the ladder, but if I was in rung number one, I was going to get rung number two, and if I was at number two, I went to number three. I didn't know what the top of the ladder looked like. I just kept moving and walking upward, and um, you know you have to have some resilience and. Um, and uh, some commitment for that, and uh, you know, good things happen if you work hard at it. And so, and I still believe that to this day. And I keep trying to tell younger people uh, when you're when we're mentoring young people, I keep telling them all the time, you know, keep moving forward, um, don't play victim, be resilient, be tenacious, be be kind, be decent in how you deal with people, have good relationship skills, and. You know, be, be positive and be entrepreneurial, and good things will come. It seems one of the key points in your career was when Governor Mario Cuomo hired you. What impact did that have on you, professionally and personally? Uh, it was a major, major uh, uh, element in my past, and, my, and, 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 and a major, major point in my career. Um, I did not know the governor um, before I, I worked in government. I, I got a call uh, asking if I would interview for the job, and I said yes, and I eventually took it. And then uh, about a year and a half after I started working in government, I got to meet the governor. I got to respect him highly. Uh, he is one of the best people I've ever had the opportunity to interact with. I ended up as the head of health and human services of the state of New York, and I ended up as his chief person on all health and human service issues. I worked alongside him for years. He was an unbelievably um, brilliant individual uh, who, by being with him, was a learning experience like uh, no other. Uh, he was encouraging. He was challenging. Uh, he was competitive. Uh, he pushed you to the limit. Uh, I... Uh, he he had a wonderful personality. Uh, you know, we used to talk about our immigrant backgrounds. Uh, he was an immigrant. I'm an immigrant. 
We talk about the importance of immigration, the importance of that to the history of the United States since we are a nation of immigrants. Um, and so we got along beautifully. I got to be very close to him. And uh, he was one of the more unique and uh, one of the people that um, in many ways changed the projection of my career. I mean, if he hadn't, I hadn't taken the job, if they hadn't offered it to me, and if I hadn't had the opportunity to work next to him, who knows? I would have done something well, no matter what it was, but I wouldn't be where I am today. So he, uh, uh, professionally, was phenomenal, and personally, he was equally phenomenal. You have since uh, been a close ally of the governor's son, Governor Andrew Cuomo. What do you see as the similarities and the differences between the two men? Well, I, uh, you know, I've known Andrew since he was, uh, you know, in his late twenties, early thirties, and I worked with Andrew years and years ago when we developed homeless programs, etc. And I've testified in Washington with Andrew in the old days. I uh, worked with him when he was HUD secretary. Um, there are a lot of similarities. Um, you know, no, no two people are exactly the same, of course. There's always a little uniqueness. But Andrew is very driven, very committed, a wonderful person. I mean, I have a great relationship with him. Uh, he, you know, my view, he's done a lot of great stuff for the state of New York. Uh, uh, he has his father's tenacity and his father's brain power. Um, um, very committed to be successful in doing what he uh, sets out to do, and um, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the, the very overall very very positive. And uh, you know, I've I've got to know the whole Cuomo family very very well because of the relationship with the father. And so um, you know, Andrew and I we do get together ever so often, and I work with him very closely, of course, all during the COVID. It's circumstance here in New York uh, because we were at the real epicenter of it, and I think we did. Uh, despite you know some of the people who now like to go back and uh, rewrite history, I think uh, overall we did a pretty good job. You were the governor's right hand man through much of this with COVID. What lessons should we take from about the healthcare system from COVID? Well, one lesson is that, um, as there's many here, one lesson is that we should have extraordinary respect for people who work in healthcare on the front lines every day. Uh, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the social workers. Uh, if anything demonstrated their dedication, compassion, and commitment and technical expertise, it was demonstrated during COVID. I don't think people fully appreciate um, the the the. the the talent that exists in healthcare, and that was clearly demonstrated during COVID. Um, uh, a major lesson, of course, is that we were not as prepared as a country, um, and most organizations were not prepared as well as they should for, to deal with a crisis like this. We didn't do the preparations ahead of time. Here at Northwell, we were pretty well prepared because we developed uh, Disaster, disaster preparedness infrastructure years and years and years ago. So we were in a relatively good position at Northwell. Uh, but overall, um, uh, we need, uh, uh, we should have been much better prepared nationally and, and at, even at the state level. And there's a lesson now that as we come out of it, we, we should not forget about what happened and be thinking about how it is we need to prepare uh, for, the, for the next one because there will be a next one. 
There's a couple of other lessons. Technology became huge. Um, we all worked during COVID. We all worked remotely. Telemedicine, virtual care became a big part of our delivery network during COVID, and that will continue. Another lesson is that when the state relaxes on regulations and gives us the freedom to be innovative, you can be extraordinarily innovative. And uh, the governor did relax a lot of regulations during COVID and allowed us to be creative. Uh, we could never have done it if the regulatory structures had not been uh, loosened up. Um, and of course, uh, the other lesson is that uh, every industry is going to be changing now with more and more people working remotely. There will be more people working from home. So every organization has to be reimagine itself as how to deal with that circumstance. Um, uh, but the you know, it's interesting when people now talk about COVID, people spend an awful lot of time talking about the numbers of people who died. And obviously that's very, very unfortunate. And uh, you never want to see anybody, uh, in uh, you know, die from any disease. But what people often don't think about is that how tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of people were saved. Uh, well, you know, everybody in the media every day will be talking about how many people died. And I always like to turn the conversation. I said, imagine how many people we saved today. Yeah, we had deaths, but if we had 20 deaths, we had 500 people saved. And that's something that we should learn from it. I mean, we got to emphasize the positive. There is so much emphasis of the negative now. Uh, and it doesn't do anything for the culture and the community culture that we try to build. But uh, it's been a learning experience. I think we're all better off for it. I think it has changed our perspective on life. I think we're different because of it, and hopefully we're going to be better because of it. Michael Dowling had a front row seat for how Andrew Cuomo and his team handled the pandemic. Northwell Health is New York's largest employer and largest health care system. Early on, Dowling was tapped by the governor to track the available supply of New York's hospital beds to make sure the sickest of the COVID patients got what they needed. I want to uh, ask you one specific question. Uh, there was a controversial March 25th directive right. from the state, basically saying that uh, nursing home patients who were leaving the hospital could go back to the nursing homes. Give right. us some insight as to how and why that decision came about. Well, first of all, I mean, let me. This, this is a complicated issue, but let me let me let me start. Um, first of all. There was, there is no evidence that, and I don't think they would stand up to any real analysis, that the, 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 the large numbers of deaths in the nursing homes was a result of people going back from the hospitals to the nursing homes. I don't think that stands up at all, even though that's in the common media today as if it's fact. They, the major problem was because of staff infections, uh, because the, the virus was around here before we knew it. And it was primarily because of staff coming in and out of the hospitals carrying the virus and visitors coming in and out of the nursing homes carrying the virus. Um, there's another piece of it to keep, to keep in mind, is that if you take a person out of a nursing home, put them in a hospital, and keep them in a hospital longer than they should be in the hospital, it is the worst possible place for those people. And the people were, um, there were people sent back from the hospital to the nursing homes but in most cases, and definitely in the cases that I'm familiar with, they were sent back you know, 10, 14, 15 days after the virus, which means that they were not, they were not 
uh, transmitting the virus at that point. Uh, you can be positive with the virus, but not be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not be uh, trans... Shedding. Huh? Yeah, yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not transmitting the, the, the disease. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, after, after, you know, 14 days after having the virus and you go back to the nursing home, yeah, that is safe. Uh, that's another point that some people miss out on. The other thing is that there were nursing homes that didn't do the right thing. Uh, you know, that no directive said you have to take the patients from the hospitals. It says uh, you, ha- you, ca- you can take patients from hospitals if you, have, if, you're, if you have the conditions that will allow you to do it safely. That's in that directive also. So it wasn't reset to the nursing homes. You have to take them irrespective. Uh, you take them when you know you can. You should cohort them in a separate area. You should have PPE. You should train your staff. And a lot of places did that well. A lot of other places didn't do it well. A lot of nursing home patients died in the hospital because we kept them in the hospital. That died, and some people were kept in the hospital too long. So it's a very complicated issue that does not. In, in, it is not as easy as the public discussion of it would appear to be making. It is much more complicated, and a lot of the criticism is not supported by fact. Uh, even And it has become very political. I mean, uh, you know, every single day you'll see, you know, the, the politics wearing its ugly head saying, you have to blame for this, you have to blame for that. And I wish we could just sit back, be a little bit more rational, analyze the circumstance. Obviously, nothing is pure. It is, you know, in certain circumstances, a patient goes back. Maybe they did infect people, but that, but the big, the big preponderance of deaths in the nursing homes happened prior to the release of patients from the hospitals back to the nursing homes, and um, and so um, uh, the, the the directive was not the reason that the, the problem was the way the problem is often being displayed as. If nothing else, Michael Dowling is unapologetic. He is a hard worker and says much of his life has been spent trying to better the circumstances of others. He went from student to teacher to government advisor to state agency head and then into private business where he is today at the top of his field. I want to ask you about the the, the size and scope of Northwell. You write in the book basically about trying to come up with this this soup to nuts healthcare system that can address all kinds of needs. And right. I'm curi- I am curious about this though. If you have a large system swallowing up smaller hospitals and you, you reduce competition, is that necessarily best, best for consumers? Uh, it is, uh, well, I mean, it depends on how you ask the question here. A large systems, integrated system, good for consumers? Absolutely, yes. Uh, the people who criticize our systems, quite frankly, and I say it directly, they don't know what the heck they're talking about. They don't understand. Um, we, New York is a very competitive marketplace. Um, many of the hospitals I took over, if I hadn't taken over those hospitals, they would have closed. They would not exist today. Those communities would have no care in those communities if I had not saved those hospitals. And I can give you a dozen examples of that. Uh, these hospitals were in terrible shape. We talked them over, we improved them, 
they are providing supreme care today compared to what they were providing before. People in the community have much more access today than they had before. Um, we have expanded all outpatient. Please remember, most of my business today is non-hospital. We have expanded all of the outpatient ambulatory sites. That can only be done as part of a large system. Plus, we have all about home care, post-acute care. COVID, during COVID, if we were not a large system, we could not have handled COVID. Uh, if there is one example of where systems work, it's uh, how we handle COVID. So to me, large systems are the future. It's not the opposite. Many of these hospitals, if you spin them loose, they will die on the vine. So I, I reject that notion completely. And it is basically written by and communicated by people who don't know what they're talking about, don't understand systems, don't understand healthcare, uh, etc. I know it's nice, you know, rhetoric politically that plays out there and is promoted by the insurance companies. Oh, by the way, uh, you know, during COVID, the insurance companies didn't do anything. They were standing on the sidelines and uh, for the most part, with a few very small exceptions, didn't want to help at all. So, and I like to be able to say big systems are bad because et cetera, et cetera. And the reason they don't like it is because they want to collect the money, they want to keep the money, they, want to, they don't want to pay for healthcare uh, to the extent that they should. And they're denying, they're denying an awful lot of the care that is delivered out there. So, yeah, health systems, in my view, are very, very good. And I could write a book on, on the reasons why. Last question. Speaking of writing a book, writing yeah. this book for you, what what did this do for you? What did, did it bring any kind of new insights? What was this like for you? Well, the the, the book. Uh, I mean, I, you know, people had asked me to you know write for many many years. People had said, you know, you're an immigrant. You have an interesting story. You're first generation. You came here basically with nothing, and you in you know you end up now running the largest health system in New York. And therefore, you should write the story. And for many years, I. I, I was very hesitant because I didn't. I thought it might be too a little bit self-serving and too grandiose. But you know, my wife finally convinced me to start writing it. And uh, uh, you know, I've I've been away from home since I was 16. I go back and forth every year, of course, to my family. But I found that writing the book was, quite frankly, was very therapeutic. When I got into writing it, it became like an addiction. I couldn't put it down. You know, you learn about yourself. You learn about your family. I found out things about my family in writing the book that, quite frankly, I didn't know before. And I thought, as I wrote it, I said, you know, maybe this could be, you know, somewhat of an inspirational story for others. It's not about me in many ways. I mean, it's an immigrant story that is replicated millions of times over. There are so many people who could write a book like this. Uh, because the story uh, is very similar. I've got numerous, numerous letters from people who say I read the book and it is so similar to my father's story. Um, so it is, and that's, it's, you know, obviously the individual, you know, detail is unique, but the overall story isn't overly unique. Uh, but for me personally, I'm glad I did it. It was helpful. I was honest. I, I spoke about my own deficiencies in that book and my own issues which people were surprised about because nobody ever knew that, including my wife didn't even know that. Um, uh, that, you know, I had some down times, and I think it's important to be honest. Uh, I was lucky. I, I came across good people, and I was mentored by good people. I learned from great people. 
And everybody's success is not just only what they do themselves, it's, it's what they learn from others. You're, you're influenced by everybody you come across and everybody you meet. So overall, in answer to your question, it was a very positive experience for me. I'm, I'm hoping people enjoy it. It was not done for commercial reasons at all. Uh, it is an immigrant story. And again, it's, the other part of it is it's a story about America. This could only happen in the United States. Farewells could a kid come with basically nothing other than the United States. And, and in one generation, in one lifetime, I have the opportunity I had only here. You know, and so we got to keep this in mind as we talk about the U.S. these days and as we have these crazy, wacky discussions about immigration. Immigration is important. Immigration is what has made this country. It will make it in the future. And if we don't change our position on immigration, um, then I think that we will be depleted as a, as a country in the future. The talent won't be here. Uh, no, obviously, there's, you know, we've we got to make sure people who come are legitimate, all of that kind of stuff, and there needs to be reform on the immigration policies. But this is a book about the U.S., it's a book about me, and it's a book about immigration. Mike, thanks so much for your time. Really, uh, great book. I enjoyed it, and I, I, thanks f- I thank you for taking the time to talk about it. No, any time. I appreciate it so much. Northwell Health's Michael Dowling with our Peter Haskell. Dowling's immigrant story is called After the Roof Caved In, an immigrant's journey from Ireland to America. It's available wherever you get your books. We thank Michael Dowling for his time this week and frankly for all the time he gave us during the pandemic. He was always available to us and we appreciate that. 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Peter Haskell and I are the executive producers, and I'm Tim Sheldon. Thank you for listening. Find us every week wherever you get your audio on demand. Just search for 880 In-Depth. And as always, please be safe. is a time of renewal so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com we make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact choose from premium blinds shades and shutters we even have options for your patio too Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.